Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. There is a, there's a reason why the scripture exhorts us to gather together. Something about uh, a whole bunch of people lifting up the name of the Lord together and bearing your hearts before him, isn't there? Yeah, so it's good to gather together, friends. Thank you for being here. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs 28. That's where we uh, will pick up this morning. We want to be in fervent prayer for our young people that returned to school this week, many of them. That's all, you know. (laughs) Just praying for you guys. God bless you. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we can sort of declare the attitude of our hearts in song and Lord uh, together standing shoulder to shoulder with others that are similarly seeking Lord uh, just to uh, unload all that is going on in there and to give you the glory that you deserve and Lord how that resonates uh, with our spirit your spirit in our hearts Lord we uh, we delight in it so thank you Lord thank you for these gifted musicians and their hearts to lead others not to themselves, but to you. And Lord, we do pray you would continue to bless us as a body of believers seeking to give you the praise you deserve. And Lord, we also want to learn from you. And uh, Lord, we know that you have given us the gift of your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit as our teacher. Lord, to minister these truths into the deep places of our hearts so that they might resonate there and, and say, this is the word of God. Listen and walk in obedience. And so, Lord, that is our desire, to sit before you, to hear from you. Lord, minister to each one of us where we are at in this moment in time and cause us to to grow as a result of our time here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Proverbs 28, we're moving through again these uh, Proverbs specifically selected by those sons or men of Hezekiah uh, who felt that Uh, these Proverbs of Solomon needed to also be included into this book that we call the book of Proverbs. And you remember that started about two, three chapters earlier, and it will continue for another two or so chapters. Some of the very Proverbs they've included are repeated Proverbs. Solomon had said it earlier. And so as we look at them, we may see some similar ideas or even very same Proverbs. But today we pick up in chapter 28, verse 1. Notice it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And Solomon here will use a couple of pictures, primarily that picture there of the bold lion, and he'll contrast two individuals. He'll contrast the wicked individual with the person there that is righteous. And so again, the wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked individual will flee when no one is pursuing them, and you know that feeling. Not that you guys are necessarily wicked individuals. In our deepest places, we all are. We know the scripture teaches that. Um, But here, you know the feeling of what it is to flee even when no one pursues you. And this is the feeling when you're driving down the road and you hear the ambulance siren And you get freaked out and nervous because it sounds an awful lot like a police siren, doesn't it? And you're convinced they caught me. They finally got me. And your guilt, because you were going just a little too fast, it robs you of peace. And you begin to wonder, are they coming for me? Now, when you have done nothing wrong or you're righteous, as Solomon says here, well, then there's no reason to fear. 
And you can go on and you can continue as bold as a lion. So the, the lion, the siren will ring, doesn't bother you. I had a car in college that couldn't go over 55 if I wanted it to go over 55. I actually had two of them in a row. And so when the siren would go off, I knew it wasn't for me, uh, unless they were pulling you over for going too slowly, which I hear they do on highways and things like that. And so there's no reason to fear if you have nothing that you are guilty of. And so it's when a person is guilty of something that there's this constant fear of getting caught. And it robs them, you'll see there, of peace. And so then these thoughts will resonate in their thinking throughout their days. Is this the day that I'm going to get caught for that item that I took last year, a couple of years ago, or what have you? Is this the day that it will become known what I've been doing behind closed doors? Is this the day that those willful indiscretions of my past are going to become disclosed. Think about the dread last summer, I think it was maybe last spring, that so many, many people in America had, particularly those in positions of entertainment or in the political realm and things like that, with that whole movement of people's past sexual indiscretions that everybody was getting caught for. And is this the next guy or the next gal that's going to be in trouble for that? I have to imagine that many people in that world were scared to death that today was going to be the day, that, the day that they got caught for those things that they had previously done. And when a person has a guilty conscience, they're going to jump at the slightest thing, believing that their day of reckoning has finally come. But, and this is good news, when your heart has been set free and you can say with confidence, my conscience is clean, then you can walk in freedom and peace. No wonder that you can be as bold as a lion in those particular instances. I don't think there is a greater gift. Well, I don't know. I don't want to speak in hyperbole, but there are very few gifts as good as a clean conscience, isn't there? To just be able to walk in peace in the midst of life circumstances and things like that because your conscience is clear and you have no reason uh, to fear being exposed. Now, in truth, the reality, every one of us in this room is guilty in all manner of ways. We have all done things that if it gets out there, we're gonna be the next guy put on the front page of the paper or passed around on social media or what have you. And we've all done things, said things that we're now ashamed of. And if they come to light, they'll be quite embarrassing for us and we're guilty. But for the believer, and this is the significant thing is that guilt has been transferred to another who has borne the weight of our sin. And that's the difference. Not that I've never done anything wrong that I don't want to get out there, but my guilt has been transferred to another. All of my sin was transferred to Christ and is continuing to be transferred to Christ. And all of my guilt has been removed and is continuing to be removed. Those stains have been and are being made clean. And so as you consider a verse like this this morning, if you see yourself as the wicked individual that's constantly set aflight, and you're always worried that they're going to catch you, and if somebody says, hey, can I talk to you? You're like, oh, no, they know. If that's going on in your heart again and again and again, you got to get rid of that. And you get rid of that by confessing your sin. And you do that ultimately to the Lord, but in many cases you do that to other individuals as well. So that there's nothing that is between you and somebody else. Our sermon title today is Out in the Open. And that's the idea. You get it out in the open. You confess it as such. And so somebody will come along many years later. Well, I know what you did when you were 16. Yeah, I did a lot of things when I was 16. Let me tell you about what Jesus did in my life. And then they don't want to talk to you anymore anyway. 
right? And so you're, you're out of the problem there. But our, if, if you are continually struggling with that fear of getting caught in your sin, it very well may be, and it likely is, that you've never come to the cross of Calvary. And in your mind, you can picture it. You've never come to that little hill and taken all of your sin and laid it down there at the foot of the cross and then got up and left without it. And that's the blessing of walking in Jesus Christ. Your guilt can be forgiven. Your stains can be washed clean. Isaiah the prophet, he said this, come now, he says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, like the white of wool, cleansed, washed, removed. And I encourage him, if you've never experienced forgiveness of sin, then it's quite natural to have a guilty conscience because you are guilty. He doesn't know me. I don't need to know you personally. We're all guilty. And if you've never experienced the forgiveness of sin, it's quite natural to have a guilty conscience. But boy, it's a blessing to have a clean conscience. And that's why we can move forward with boldness, the boldness that Solomon speaks of. And that comes in our forgiveness that we experience in Jesus Christ. Amen, good friends? Look at verse 2. It says, When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Interesting verse here that speaks into sort of our political system, our governmental system, and things like that. When the leaders of a community or a nation, when they lack understanding and knowledge, you might translate this, some versions do, not a lot, but a few, as integrity, understanding and knowledge. They know what to do and they walk in it. They know that's the right way to walk. That's the idea of integrity. When leaders of a community or a nation lack integrity, that community of people are going to experience instability as a result of that lack of integrity. How do you know that? Because the Bible says so. Well, I didn't hear Montesquieu talk about that. I didn't hear all the great political philosophers talk about it. Solomon, the wisest that has ever lived, talked about it. And that's good enough for me. It's in our scriptures. And so when we have a situation where the leaders of a community lack integrity, then the people of that community are going to experience instability as a lack of that integrity because attention needs to be diverted to other things because of the lack of integrity. Resources, manpower, all of these things have to be, that could be devoted to accomplishing good in a community must instead be diverted to deal with the various transgressions caused by the corrupt leader. Just a little while ago, the mayor of Trenton uh, was removed from office and, and sent away to federal prison. It was two or so mayors ago, and he was sent to federal prison. One of the articles that came out afterward was an opinion piece in a local paper, and it simply said this, now the people of Trenton can begin to focus on the problems of Trenton instead of dealing with their mayor's indiscretions. That was the result. And that's the point that Solomon is getting at is that when all of those resources and attention, when all of that has to be diverted to deal with these things, instead of solving the real problems that the people are dealing with, then that nation suffers. It has, or that people, I should say, suffer. And pretty soon when that is the case, when our leaders lack integrity, pretty soon what do the people say? Throw the bum out. You heard that? My dad says that a lot. Throw the bum out. Just get rid of them. And then there's this constant rotation. And then another guy comes in and, you know, man, he or she, she's a bum too. Throw her out. And there's just this rotation. But when you have a good leader who leads with integrity and is an honorable individual that does what's best for the people, 
well, then the people that he or she rules over are blessed. And they want to keep that person. And the parades start, and we, yay for this guy, we love this guy. And the people come out in the open, and everybody rejoices in it. And so if a corrupt, one corrupt individual replaced by another, some places around the world, one corrupt government is replaced by another, or a system of government is replaced by another, and it's just this rotation, and nothing can get flowing in that particular society. This is why a verse like this is why I believe that character matters in the election of our officials. You can do whatever you want with who you pick, but as far as I'm concerned, character matters in the election of our officials, and when the ruler is a person of integrity and understanding, then that community is going to enjoy a settled, stable peaceful condition. And ultimately, isn't that really what we want for our kids and our society? I just want a nice, peaceful, settled place where my kids can go out, they can work hard, they can do what they're going to need to do and raise their family and love their kids as I'm trying to love them. That's ultimately what I want in my society. And we can have that only when people that rule with integrity and understanding rule over us. Now, you know who tends to live their lives with integrity and understanding? Followers of Jesus Christ. There's about a hundred of you in here. Some of you need to run for political office. Some of you need to run for political office. She's right there. We have one that's running. Because you're the type of people that are going to rule with integrity and with understanding. You're the type of people our society needs until Jesus comes back. And so I want to encourage you that ah, I'm not going to get involved. I see how it is. No, you need to. You know, Greg, you should. No, I got a job. All right, but you should. All right, pray about it. Seek the Lord for his wisdom. Really, honestly, because it could be you. Now we continue. Look at verse 3. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Now if anyone should have compassion on the poor, it would be a person that themselves is poor. Now, what Solomon is likely getting at here is a person that had previously been poor, who now has risen to a place of leadership of some form and is now taking advantage of those that were his former compatriots, colleagues, if you will. And again, if they know what it is like to be impoverished, you would expect that they would have a heart for those that are impoverished and they would care for them. And so the picture that Solomon draws here to make his point, it's that of a farmer who would be delighted when the rain clouds form. So here's the farmer sitting there, the rain clouds are coming, and this is going to be great, finally. Our fields are going to get some water. But then the rain comes down so hard that actually being able to sink into the ground and nourish those plants, it hits that ground and it starts to flood. Or it drives away all the seeds or things like that that were in the ground just because of the force that it comes down here. And so the farmer was excited that the rains were coming, but then he was disappointed when the rains came as the poor person would be excited when a formerly poor person is now elevated to lead over them, but is now disappointed that that person was put in power. And if you go and you study history, how often you see the people rejoicing because of words like this, one of our own is finally in power, they might say, or, oh, we finally have a man or a woman of the people. And they're all excited about what this is going to mean for their country. And then the person gets a little bit of a hand on power and they become corrupt themselves, and they begin to service themselves at the expense of the poorest of the society. And sadly, the people's expectations are unfulfilled. And Solomon's silent exhortation is this, guard yourself lest you become such a person. 
Let me give you an example of how this might apply in your life. You're probably never going to lead a nation, although some of you are going to run for office. We just talked about it. Um, maybe you will. But let's say you're at your place of work, and you're, you know, you're just one of the, the people in the, in the mix there of the machinery, and all of a sudden now, in, in the midst of that, you find yourself, well, if I was a, the boss, I would never do it that way. I would never do it this way. This is how I would do it, and so on. And then circumstances are such that you end up rising to be the boss. What kind of boss are you going to be? Are you going to be a different boss than the one that previously frustrated you and upset you? Or will you just be the same old thing? You see how there's a practical connection there? No? Not seeing it? Okay. All right. Chew on it a little bit. Verse 4 says, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. More often than not, people who praise the wicked do so because their heart's desire is for wickedness. And the individual attempts to throw off all restraint, the restraint of the law. Now, this is talking about uh, both man's law and God's law. But they attempt to throw off all the restraint of the law, or they attempt to justify their own actions, simply to relieve themselves of their guilty conscience. And so this particular thing is wrong. What can we do about it? Well, let's change the definition of wrong. Rather than dealing with their heart problem and the reasons why they desire to go astray, so often they attempt to just redefine what astray actually is. Isaiah the prophet, he said this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So often they attempt to redefine what astray actually is until it gets so bad that that which previously was evil is now good and that which previously is good, was good has now become evil. And Solomon said it's a mark of a society that is going astray from God. It is man's responsibility to bring himself, herself, into compliance with God's ways, not for God to bring himself into compliance with man's ways. That's a very important thing for us to understand and just nail down. This is the way it is. It's like gravity. This is the way it is. You can't fight it necessarily. It's our responsibility to bring ourselves into compliance with God's ways, not his responsibility to bring himself into compliance with ours. And failure to do so, failure to bring ourselves into compliance with his ways, it means that judgment remains on us. And so the exhortation then for us is this, don't justify your sin. We want to do that all the time. We, it's our natural tendency in our sinful nature to do so, to justify my sin, to explain away my sin, to blame somebody else for my sin. And Solomon, the scripture teaches us, don't justify your sin, confess your sin, and forsake your sin. And that is what the Lord is calling us to do. Verse 5 says, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. In another place, the psalmist said this, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, typically, with age comes wisdom. The older we get, the more stuff we pick up. We learn things. We make mistakes. We learn from those mistakes. And so typically, with age comes wisdom. But what Solomon, or excuse me, what the psalmist there in Psalm 119 says is that the even more sure path to wisdom is this. The more sure path to, to wisdom and understanding is knowing God's precepts and keeping God's precepts. You see that there? I understand more than the aged, for I've attended a lot of Bible studies. That's not what it says. But it says, I have kept your precepts. Again, merely knowing 
all of these things isn't going to do you any good. What does do you well, what will have a positive effect on your life is not just knowing these things, but keeping these things. It's as we walk in God's ways that we begin to understand God's ways on an even greater scale. And so that's why a young person, and for me, a young person is in their mid-20s or so, but for a young person that has been pouring themselves into the Word of God and responding by walking in obedience to the Word of God, that's why people will look at them and say, man, you really are mature for your age. But you really know some things for someone, you know, that's just getting started in their adult life or whatever. It's because as we obey these things that we grow in understanding, that we grow in wisdom. And the world around us takes notice of that. And what begins to happen as you learn these ways, you obey these ways, God's heart becomes your, your heart. And God's ways become your ways. And so you begin to walk in these things and they become the desire of your heart. Now conversely, the wicked, the evil man, as it says there in our verse, the evil man refuses to practice justice and in doing so loses the power to even understand what justice is. And so they'll make decisions, and you're looking like, where did that come from? Because as they refuse to practice justice, they lose the power even to understand justice. The the verse says, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And they walk in those ways. God's heart becomes their heart. Verse 6 says, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Amen? Now, I asked that question, I put a question mark on the end of the amen there, because your ability to answer that question will determine the desire of your heart. Let me read it again. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in all of his ways. Do you really believe that? And if we gave many people a choice, would you rather be a poor honorable man or a rich dishonorable individual? There are many people in our society that would say, well, I'd rather be rich. I'd rather be rich in this society. But Solomon here, he reminds us, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And if your desire is for riches and wealth, then you're going to bend whatever needs to be bent in order to acquire that desire. If, on the other hand, your desire is to walk in integrity, then no amount of riches will get you uh, to deter from that particular goal. And the testimony of Scripture, both both in this verse and in other places, is this, that it's better to be a poor man who walks in integrity than to be a rich man who gives himself to sin to to acquire those riches. You remember the story of uh, the account of Lazarus and the rich man in the New Testament? It's found in the book of Luke. It's chapter 16. And Jesus tells us of that account. And you look at the story there, the account, I believe, who's better off? In that account, the rich man who had everything he could ever want on the earth, but now lives eternally in torment, or Lazarus who begged for crumbs here on the earth, but was ushered into the place of Abraham's bosom upon his death. The answer is self-explanatory. Better is the poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And so I encourage you, search out your heart. What's the honest answer to that question? What's your chief pursuit in life? Is it temporal goods like money? Or is it being in a right place with the Lord? Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity. Continues on, verse 7. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding. 
but a companion of gluttons shames his father. There's no way around it, but when one son or daughter goes astray, those decisions break the heart of a loving mom and dad. And when a child becomes a companion of gluttons, as Solomon words it here, a parent can't help but be disappointed and perhaps even shamed by that child's choices. Now that's what makes our relationship with God so amazing. Think about another parable in the New Testament, the parable of the prodigal son. And here you have a son who essentially says to his dad, I wish you were dead because then I would have your, my inheritance from you. And that's really what I want from you in life. I want the money. And so he says, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance now. And the dad does. And the kid goes wandering off and he squanders that money in riotous living and in debauchery and things like that, the scripture says. And he eventually spends all his money. All of his friends leaves. He finds himself out there uh, living uh, amongst the pigs and things like that, seeing the food they're eating and desiring it for himself. And it says he finally comes to his senses. Now you put all of this in, it's a parable designed to teach a point. Here's a man that has just forsaken his heavenly father, living his life for himself, doing whatever he wants. And then as it says there in the parable, he came to his senses. He realized, what am I doing? Why am I putting myself through these things? Why have I acted in these particular ways? I'll go back to my father. I'll plead to him for mercy. Perhaps he'll let me be a slave in his household. It's certainly better than what it is I'm experiencing out here. He just cries out to him for his mercy. And when he gets back to see his father, this is the amazing part. In light of that verse in Proverbs, this is the amazing part of the parable of the prodigal son. It says that his father sees him a long way off. That means he's been looking for him. It says his father does the humiliating thing of hiking up his, uh, his robe and running to his son. Two things that a distinguished man wouldn't have done. Show his kneecaps, essentially, and then go running out there. And yet, and remember, this is the kid who said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want the money. And he runs out to meet him. And then, what did the kid want? He wanted mercy. What does the dad give? He gives him grace. He says, you're not going to come here and be a slave in my house. We're going to throw a party for you as the exalted son of my house. And that's how our heavenly father deals with you and I. We talked about earlier how often we try to hide our sin from God and from others. Your heavenly father looks for you to return. That he might pour out his blessing on your life. Show you mercy and pour out his grace. What a good father we have, amen? A verse like this should remind us of that. So kids, honor your father and your mother. Deuteronomy chapter 5 says this, Honor your father and your mother that it might go well with you. First commandment with the promise, Paul points out to us, that it might go well with you and also that you might be a blessing to them. Verse 8 says, Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. Now specifically this verse is speaking of profiting off of the misfortune of the poor. And it makes the point that the Lord does not look too kindly on those that do such things. 
Now, to understand this a bit, I think we need to dig a little bit. The, old, the King James and some other versions, no doubt, use the old English word of usury here. It's not translated like that in many of our modern translations. And the Old Testament of our Bible speaks about this idea of usury. Usury is the high rate of interest placed upon another person for a debt that they might owe. And the Jewish person, according to their law, was forbidden to charge usury of another Jewish person. Deuteronomy 23:19 says it, thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. And that system was put in place, not lending to someone and then charging them this exorbitant high rate of interest. That system was put in place specifically to protect the poor. Now, a lot of us borrow money these days and we owe money to various places. In some cases, some of us are considered very rich and yet we owe a lot of money to a lot of people. It's kind of a little twisted the way that has gotten. And in that, in here in the, the Old Testament times and in other places, as well as in as an earlier time in America, people didn't borrow money. It was just not something you did. I'm not going to borrow money. Oh my gosh. What does that say about me? Or whatever. Now it's a pretty common thing for us to do. And so it was pretty much the only people that borrowed money in those days or those that had no other option anywhere else. I guess I'm going to have to go and borrow money, is how they began to see it. And so here now is a, basically an impoverished person, a poor person, who finds themselves in this very difficult place, and I got nowhere else that I can turn. And so they come to you, and by charging usury, you're taking advantage of that particular individual, because they have nowhere else where they can go. Does that all make sense? You, you see the, the point I'm, I'm making here? This was their measure of last resort. And because they were then highly susceptible to be taken advantage of, the Lord here forbids usury. It was put in place as a system designed to protect those that most needed protection. And so what Solomon says here is this. If you think you're going to get rich by taking advantage of the poor in their desperation, he says all you're really doing is gathering up funds to give to those who will take care of the poor in their desperation. Again, notice, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. The Lord sees the plight of the poor and he acts on their behalf. And so if your actions are working against God's desires, then that means you have set yourself up in opposition to God. Now, we're not the smartest people in the world, but does that sound like a good idea? No, certainly not. Do you really want to set yourself up as God's adversary? I wouldn't think so. And so it's better to be right with God and have less of this world's goods. But I can make so much money through this usury system and take advantage of those and charge them these high exorbitant loan amounts and things like that. Yeah, you could. You can gather up that money. Here he tells you you're not going to get to keep that money. But even, even so, it's better to be right with God and have less of this world's goods than to abound in this world's riches, but to be far from God. Again, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. As Jesus would say in the New Testament, no man can serve two masters. If you love money, you will serve money, and it'll become your God, and you'll do whatever you need to do to whomever you need to do it in order to acquire it. 
And that's going to impact your relationship with God and with others and put you in direct opposition to him. And so allow the Lord to search out your heart on these matters. Is money your God? Are possessions that which you're running after and longing for? I hope not. Now, continuing on verse 9, it says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. The law we're speaking of there is God's law. And what this verse says, notice, doesn't beat around the bush in any way. It says, if you will not hear the Lord's word to you, then he will not hear your words to him. Now, of course, when we talk about if you will not hear his words to you, hearing means to listen and to obey. And so this certainly talks about the person where God's word is spoken. Somebody brings it through the Bible study or they just simply say, well, you know, the Lord says this. And this speaks of the person that says, ah, I'm not interested in that. It speaks of that person. But it also speaks to the person. I think this is more likely who you and I might be. It also speaks to the person who sits. They hear. They sit in a room like this. They kind of nod their head. Yeah, that's good stuff. Those Proverbs, they're fantastic. But when the time comes to put the words into action, they end up saying either verbally or just with their heart and their response, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do. And such a person there, they know the right thing to do, but they go ahead and they do the wrong thing. And then they come back to the Lord and they say, oh, Lord, please bless me. Bless my family. Bless my efforts. And the Lord says here that such a prayer, look at the word, is an abomination to him. In another place, the psalmist said this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And nowhere in the Bible does God promise to hear the prayer, much less respond to the prayer of those who are refusing to obey him. How's that fit with the American gospel that we tend to hear? Not very comfortable, is it? God does... I deserve to be heard, God. You're lucky that I'm even coming to you with my prayer. No, man, I'm sorry. We need to relearn some things as American Christians, I think. God doesn't owe us anything. We're just thankful for his grace and mercy in our lives, simply so. And if we're walking in disobedience in these areas, and then we want God to do some blessing over here, and we're going to bring our prayers to him for these things over here, and think he's going to hear us? Well, we're off the mark in our thinking. If at, and of course, he can hear everything. But what he's going to say is this. Okay, let, let's hold on to that for a second. Why don't we go back over here and let's talk about this. Remember the last time that I ministered to your heart and I spoke into your life about a particular area and you said, yeah, I know that's true, but I'm not interested. I'm going to do what I want to do. Let's talk about that. And that's what he's going to deal with, and that's what he's going to speak with, if you will, with that particular person. Because where God is truly feared, and where the law or the word has its place of honor in that person's life, they receive it and they respond accordingly, seeking to walk into it, well, then you know that that person's prayer is going to be according to God's will, because they're walking in God's will. And the Lord hears that particular prayer and he answers. But when a person is walking in their own ways and they're walking according to their own wisdom and they're walking in defiance to God's law, if that person lifts up a prayer, 
Well, the whole purpose of that prayer is to spend it on their own desires, as James will say in the New Testament. And the Lord is under no obligation, nor does he have any desire to answer such a prayer. And so the place of our prayer life, and many people, they begin their private times of prayer, they begin with repentance. The place our prayer life really needs to begin. We praise the Lord for who he is, and then we repent from any known sin. And we say, Lord, if there's anything that, you know, just blind spots in my life, reveal it to me, show it to me. I want to confess it as such. Then you go in and you start asking God for the things that you desire. And as you go in that particular order of things, then you know those things you're going to ask are going to be according to his particular will. Those are the prayers that he hears and he answers. Verse 10 says, whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. Jesus would say in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The scripture makes clear that the Lord stands directly opposed to those who seek to lead others from the way that they should go. And it makes clear that folks that attempt to do that will suffer the consequences for doing so. Notice the verse, whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into a pit, but the blameless will have a good inheritance. Amen. Verse 11, a rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. Now the temptation for the rich, and you might say, well, that doesn't, speak to me. Every one of us as Americans are essentially rich, okay, as far as the world standards and history standards are concerned. So even if you don't think you're the richest person in the world, put yourself here in this. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. And the temptation for the rich is to think that they have it all together, that they they figured it all out. They're, as Solomon says, wise in their own eyes. They glory in their riches, convinced that they're so clever. A, now, a rich person doesn't have to think that way. So it's not evil to, be, to have money or, or things like that. That's not necessarily wrong. It's the love of money that becomes the root of all evil. So just because you have something, I'm not telling you to give it all away or things like that. Nor am I telling you just because you have a lot of things, you're going to necessarily think this way. This is a temptation that particularly strikes those that are rich. And oftentimes they are clever, or excuse me, uh, wise in their own eyes. Because things are going well. And when things go well with us here on the earth, and we're succeeding at school, for instance, or we're succeeding in our relationship, or we're succeeding in our finances, or you sit down on the first day of the month and you pay your bills and you're like, I did it. I can live another month, you know, or whatever. And everything has been paid. Soon we begin to convince ourselves that we don't really need somebody else's help anymore. We don't need their assistance. We don't need their input. Even God's. We say to ourselves, well, I got it all figured out. After all, look at the size of my bank account. I got it all figured out. And we think to ourselves, some of us even say that out loud, be careful in such moments of time. Because haughtiness and pride comes just before a person's inevitable fall. And whether that's God directly responding and saying, I'm going to drop you down a notch, or if it's the result of you kind of losing your focus 
And those things you did that helped you to be successful, you stopped doing those things and thus you're going to fall. It's probably a, bend, a, a combination of those two aspects altogether here. But the scripture says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to walk in humility. Acknowledging, as we read in the New Testament, that every good and every perfect gift comes from our Father that is above. And the Lord is blessed or pleased to bless a person that walks with such an attitude. And that's why we're exhorted to have such an attitude. Be careful that your success doesn't drive you to the place of pride because pride comes before destruction. Verse 12 goes on, When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Again, we come back to character matters in those that are serving in, uh, in positions of leadership. And when the righteous person reigns, triumphs, if you use the word here, by virtue of their nature, righteousness is also going to reign in that particular society. And when righteousness reigns in a society, as such, the people are going to rejoice. And there is great glory for that particular ruler. The people will be out in the streets having parades for that particular ruler because they're, be, they're experiencing the blessing of righteousness. Not only having parades for that individual, but they'll be busy in that society with opportunities that are going to benefit their family, that are going to benefit their local community. Now, conversely, when, wicked, when the wicked triumph or when the wicked rise, as he says here in verse 12, well, then there's a corresponding fear and anxiety in that particular community. Because when the wicked rule, there's no justice in such a society. Wickedness is the antithesis of justice. And people will hide themselves, hoping that keeping their head down and being in the shadows, they're not going to get swept up in all that is involved with the wicked and corrupt rulers. And so again, we see that a community or a nation's well-being is directly tied into the morality and character of its leaders. It's so important. Proverbs says it again and again and again. We see it in these different Proverbs that are here. Verse 13, our final verse today, it says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You remember in the book of Genesis, we have the account very at the, at the start of the book of Adam and Eve. And it tells us there that they took of the forbidden fruit, that they sinned. It's recorded for us in the opening chapters of the book. And after having done so, their response was to run and to hide and to cover the results of their sin. To use Solomon's phrase here in Proverbs, they concealed their transgressions. And the scripture tells us, even as the Lord called out to Adam, and he, then he calls them out for their sin, that their next response, as they already tried to cover it up and hide their sin, their next response, it tells us, is to blame everybody but themselves. And so Adam blames his wife. And if you look at it carefully, he blames the Lord too. Everything was great until you put her here. And now I've sinned. So ultimately, God, it's your fault. He blames his wife. He blames the Lord. Eve, the attention's turned to her. She blames the serpent. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for this guy over here. What neither of them did was blame themselves. Neither of them took responsibility for their sin. And I said it earlier, the natural disposition of fallen man, and even believers can do this, 
because the fallen man still wrestles with the renewed man in each of our hearts. But the natural disposition is to attempt either to hide our sin or to push off our sin onto another person. It wasn't my sin, it was their sin. I'm just a collateral damage of their sin. Yeah, I I know I made those decisions, but I never would have. And so we try to push it off to someone else. Yet, confession of our sin is God's appointed method of obtaining mercy. You remember in the Old Testament, you have the story there, the account there of David. Now, David, it tells us, was a man after God's own heart. That's what I'd like it to be said of me. I want to have someone say, that's a man after God's own heart. And that's what was said of David. And yet, here is this man after God's own heart who finds himself involved in an adulterous affair. And then you see him coming up with all sorts of schemes to cover up that affair. It's right around 1 Samuel chapter 10, 11, 12, and so on. And, he, he, and that cover-up even included having somebody murdered. Can you imagine? I remember sharing this story. I was working with a hockey team in, uh, in Trenton, and most of those guys were not familiar with the Bible at all. And we were having a Bible study, and I was sharing uh, from 1 Samuel. And I shared this story. And one of the kids who had never heard, he's an adult, one of the young men who had never heard this particular story in his life, he looked at me like, that's awful. And I, and I said, you never heard this story, have you? I've heard it, you know, a million times or whatever. Many of us are familiar with it. He had an affair with his neighbor's wife, an officer in his military who was all fighting for him. And then after attempts to cover it up, he had his neighbor killed so that he would be able to get away with this particular thing. That's a shocking uh, thing of events. Uh, what's the word? Of events. Sir, uh, series of events. Very good here. Now, this man went to great lengths to conceal his sin. And as you, now, here's why I'm getting to this. As you continue to read through 2 Samuel, what you find is that David... He covered up this sin for at least nine months because as a result of that adulterous affair, the woman got pregnant and he doesn't deal with the sin until after the baby is born. And so he dealt with this sin, or excuse me, he covered up this sin for at least nine months. And as you look at the story and you sort of just pull back and you're like, what would that be like in today's circumstances? In, in light, it looked like David had gotten away with it. It looked like he had gotten away with it because the scenario is, again, he tries to bring the man back and spend some time with his wife and everyone will think it'll be his baby, but that doesn't work out. And so then he sends the guy off to battle and he tells his leaders there, pull back so that the man dies. He's called out in the middle of the battle. That's what happens. Great soldier, great officer, wasted because David is trying to conceal his sin. Then David will go and marry this man's wife, the woman he had the affair with, And it doesn't say this, but I can't help but think that society was like, David is amazing. What kind of king do we have that he would even take one of his officer's wives, a widow, into his home and care for her the way he did? David is such a wonderful person. And he had gone away with it. And nobody had known, but David knew. And the scripture teaches us some things about concealing our sin that I think are very, very important for us here. Because from all external vantage points, David had gotten away with it. But in his heart, internally, he knew he hadn't. 
And there was a day, again about a year later, that a prophet came to the door, rings the bell there of the palace. This prophet's name was uh, Nathan. And he tells David this story. And David hears the story, and it's just, oh my God, that's awful. Deal with that man, you know. And he's angered by this made-up story. And Nathan turns to him and he says, you're the man. And immediately it tells us that David realized his sin had been exposed. And I've been convicted of sin in the past. And I know what it's like to just let it go on and go on and go on. And hopefully, you know, those guilty feelings will just pass and I'll be okay and I'll be able to go on with my life. And the Lord in his mercy just keeps bringing the conviction. You may have moments, a week or so, a couple weeks goes by and you're like, it's all good, I'm cool or whatever, and you don't feel the conviction, but then he brings it back on you again. That's so mean of him. No, that's so loving of him because he doesn't want us to reside in that sin. And no doubt over that nine months, David would have these waves of conviction that came into his life. And like us, no doubt, he found ways to kind of put the wave away. I'll watch some TV. I'll forget all about it. You know, I'll go out. I'll play some games. My mind will get busy with other things. I won't think about it but they just keep coming back and they keep coming back. And now Nathan says to him, you're the man. And David here now has a choice. He could say, get in here, throw him in the dungeon, kill him. You don't know what you're talking about. He could lie again about it. He could try and cover it up again. But after a year of the misery, really, of the strong conviction against him, David finally says this, I'm done. I'm done. You're right. And he acknowledges his sin. And so the reason I bring it up this morning is for two reasons. Number one is it's a perfect example of somebody concealing their transgression. But the the second reason that I bring it up is David's response to that confrontation. And if you would, you have to please turn to Psalm 32 in your Bibles. Psalm 32 is a wonderful psalm just in and of itself. But in the context of what I just shared with you, it's, I think, even more powerful. Because it reveals to us David's heart following that confrontation. As I said, for nearly a year, he sought to conceal his sin, but he couldn't conceal it any longer. And Psalm 32, it says this. Look at verse 3, actually. It says, When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, he says, your hand, he's talking about God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so for a year, David remained silent. Notice it says, that's what he says. He remained silent about his sin. And every time the conviction entered in, he would squash the conviction. He'd push it down. He'd get involved in something else, anything that would keep himself from having to deal with his sin. But notice what it says there in verse 3. Notice what happened in his life as a result. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. He adds, for day and night, your heavy hand was upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Those past sins that he had done and his present sin of refusing to repent were literally tapping him of his energy and his vitality. That the guilt that was associated was actually impacting him. 
not just spiritually, but even physically and emotionally. And I've been there. I've been there during my years of walking with the Lord, of not wanting to deal with sin, but rather cover up sin, hide sin, conceal it. Not necessarily from other people, but ultimately from the Holy Spirit, who was bringing conviction. And here you have this guy saying, it was actually impacting me, not just spiritually, but even physically and emotionally. And finally, David broke, and he confessed his sin. The prophet Nathan confronts him, And David has a choice there, either to do something to Nathan or to further hide his sin or to give up. And that's what David does. And he says, you're right. He says, you're right, I did it. And for this last year, I've been trying to cover it up. Look at verse 5 of the psalm. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you. Now, he's talking to Nathan, but he acknowledges his sin to God. He said, I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Now that word acknowledge there, it's so important. That word acknowledge simply means this, you are right. You're right. You've been convicting me of this sin over and over again for a year now, and I finally agree with you that you are right. This was sin. And for months, David had no doubt been making all sorts of excuses, just as Adam and Eve made all kinds of excuses. But finally now, after all that time, he says, enough, God, you're right. Will you forgive me? And notice what it says there at the end of verse 5, and you forgave me. Isn't that amazing? And you hear that, you say, oh, that's a nice story. There's even more to the account. Look, look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Because this is how he begins this psalm. He says, blessed is the man, the the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's one thing to be forgiven. And you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. Appreciate it. But notice what David says. He says, blessed is the one. That can be translated just like in the Beatitudes in the New Testament. It can be traded, oh, or, um, translated, oh, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Oh, how happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David went from parched, dried, withering, and broken in the rest of the psalm there, you read it, to the words, oh, how happy. And the thing that brought about the change was that he finally stopped hiding his sin, covering his transgression, and instead he acknowledged his sin and his transgression. He admitted that he had sinned. He confessed that sin. And then as we learn here, he forsook that sin as he moved forward. And the Lord set him free. Right back to where we began our study today, or the second verse or so of our study. The Lord set him free from his guilt, And he showed forth his mercy in his life. Unconfessed sin will impact every single area of your life. And it will rob you of life. It may not actually kill you, but it will tear you up inside until you finally break, one way or the other. And yet there is a God who offers us mercy. And the one who receives that mercy is the one who confesses and forsakes his sin. Looks to the Lord Jesus Christ to take away the penalty of that sin. And as it says in the book of 1 John, if we confess, he's faithful. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just. He'll forgive us of our sin and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Never can happen as long as we hold on to our sin. And so I encourage you, if you've been wrestling with God about an area of sin, or there's something between you and God and you and others, you need to bring those things before him. You need to acknowledge them for what he's been telling you that they are, sin, and then you need to confess those sins and forsake them. And when you do that, how long did it take for David to be, oh, how happy? I would suggest to you it was instantaneous. When you do that, the flood of God's grace and mercy washes into your life and it sets you free from all of those things. Last verse I want to share with you. This is from the book of Micah. It says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Let's give the Lord an opportunity to show that mercy today. And let's leave nothing concealed in our hearts between him, uh, us and him and us and others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that uh, we can return to you because of the access that's been granted to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that verse in Isaiah that though our sins be as deep and dark red as crimson, that they can be washed as white as snow. Lord, we thank you that Scripture says if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for this verse that reminds us of when we conceal our sin. Lord, that we unnecessarily alienate us from the one who's willing to pay the price for that sin. And so certainly, Lord, for those with us here that are not yet believers, that need to deal with their sin problem and the penalty of their sin, which is death, Lord, I pray you would draw them. But here we're a church, and many of us, no doubt, are followers of Jesus Christ. And, and yet, I know from my experience in the past that there have been prolonged periods of time of unconfessed sin. And Lord, I know the impact and the effect that that can have on a person's heart, even on their physical frame, Lord, their emotions and their attitudes. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would do the wonderful work of bringing each one of us to the place Lord, of just really coming face to face with you, much like Nathan did with David, and saying, you know what, Lord, you're right. I'm done. I acknowledge it as such. Would you wash me? And Lord, by the authority of the word of God, we know that you will. And so pour out that cleansing work this morning so that all of us here can leave this place Lord, having left our guilt behind. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.